dear congregation, with uh, th- uh, this Sunday being the first Sunday of the Advent season, as the traditional church calendar uh, has it, I thought to uh, interrupt our series on the book of Acts and to preach a series of sermons appropriate to this Advent season, and especially uh, to consider with you the biblical covenants as they are given us in Scripture, starting this week with Abraham's covenant. Next week, if we live and are well, the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, and then next, the covenant with David, and finally, the new covenant. The covenants that God has given to us in Scripture, and the covenants which I just listed off for you, of course, are, are but chapters, right, in the, in the larger book of God's eternal covenant and plan of salvation, a covenant which began in eternity past between the Father and the Son, no doubt the Holy Spirit, also a participant in that covenant. But then this this eternal covenant that God made in eternity past, he begins to open the chapters of that book, page by page, chapter by chapter. This This is what we mean when we say redemptive history. In other words, it's the, I know that term may sound a little complicated, but it's really very simple. It's just the history of God's redemptive acts throughout the history of the Bible, starting in the Garden of Eden and to Noah and to Abraham and David and so on and so forth. Now, why, is, why are the covenants then uh, such an appropriate thing to consider when we think about Advent and the coming of the Christmas celebration? Well, because, uh, dear friends, Christmas is just one stop in God's eternal program, eternal plan of salvation. And it's a highlight. It's, it's, one, of the, it's one of the major stopping points, if I could say it that way, one of the major points uh, along this program, right? The, the, uh, the children hope to uh, give us a, a Christmas program in, in a future Lord's Day, right? And, and they have a program, they have a plan. First, we're going to do this, and then this, and, and then this, right? And in the same way, if you think of the vast stretch from eternity past to eternity future, God has this plan of salvation, And it comes to us in the form of a covenant. It began with a covenant between the Father and the Son. But then in in time, God God uh, discloses or he unveils his covenant, his purposes of salvation in these covenants. Now, I would think that especially in a church like this one, where our very name is Covenant United Reformed Church, this would be a topic of some interest to us, since it's uh, right in our name already, isn't it? Covenant United Reformed Church. So, the, uh, the, the study of God's covenants will lead us to the cradle. It'll lead us to Bethlehem. And that's what I hope to do in the coming weeks. Now, first, if we can just define a covenant in the Bible and even in our own everyday life, my friends, our life is, is full of these covenants, right? I, I suspect that even in the past week, we, we had dealings with people based on these covenants, right? We call them in our day contracts, right? Contracts. But still, a covenant, right? It's just some kind of agreement with binding uh, 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 strictures or binding uh, terms, terms that bind each side of the covenant. Now, most of the covenants that we enter into in our life are covenants between equals, right? You make an arrangement with the, uh, the roofer to shingle your house, 
right? And you're, you're equal, right? You could, you could say no to his terms. You can say yes to his terms. But once those terms have been entered into and have been duly ratified, then the business goes on. But there's no superiority between one or the other. Well, in the, in the biblical idea of a covenant, we have to dismiss that idea entirely. Because when God comes to his people in covenant, there's very clearly a, a supreme uh, a superiority there. God comes to a people and he makes a covenant with them. So it's not between equals. It's a superior covenanting with an inferior. And the terms are given to the, to the inferior. Now, let's think about Abraham's covenant then. <clears throat> Abraham's covenant begins in Genesis 12. We don't actually have the word covenant here in Genesis 12. Still, uh, from the rest of the scripture, as you'll see, this is clearly the beginning of God's covenant with Abraham. And I think that if we read through this, these verses as we did, these first nine verses, uh, we can come to the conclusion that God made these promises to Abraham specifically pertaining to three things. Three things. Three promised blessings. Children, I think you have those on your notes as well. And you can write these in there. But the first one is land. Now, Abraham is told to go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I shall show you. Now, in those verses, it's not necessarily stated that God's going to give him that land. However, you'll remember at the end of, uh, in verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So there you have the land promise. God promises to give Abraham the land of Canaan, or the land today we know as Palestine. So this was a promise that God gave to Abraham. Land. Now the second one is seed. Seed is the word that the scriptures use. And that, of course, refers to children. We have in verse 2, Genesis 12, in verse 2, and I will make you a great nation. And probably these other blessings, too, pertain to the number of children that God would give to Abraham. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. So God promises to make Abraham a great nation. He promises Abraham to multiply his seed, to multiply his children into a great nation. And then the last blessing is just that Abraham would himself be a blessing, or he would be a source of blessing. So this third one, uh, just put blessing. That's actually the text of the sermon, is the last part of chapter 3, I'm sorry, verse 3. So I'm in Genesis 12 and verse 3, and that last part, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So land, seed, and blessing. Now initially when we read this, uh, we don't come to any other conclusion, but that this means simply that Abraham will be given, that God promises to give Abraham the physical land of Palestine, the actual soil, the trees, the rocks of Palestine. And that when he promises him children, this means that Abraham is going to have many, many, many children who will one day become a great nation. And that when God promises that Abraham will be a blessing, we assume that Abraham will be a source of 
actual, literal, physical blessings to the nations with whom he comes into contact. Now, there's a little hint here that maybe more is implied than just those physical and literal blessings. Again, notice that in the the text for today, at the very end of verse 3, it says, and in you all the families of the earth. Now, that's pretty... That's pretty extensive. Uh, But even there, it it could be understood to mean in you all the families of the land. In other words, the the earth that we see around us will be blessed. So again, we read this and we we assume that these are the blessings that God has promised to Abraham. Now, again, I use that term redemptive history. How is this covenant now unfolded? Like, uh, how does this covenant in history work itself out? What's the next you might say, page in this chapter. If this covenant that God made with Abraham is one chapter of God's larger covenant plan with his people to save them, this is one chapter, God's covenant with Abraham, there's another page in it. And again, if you have your Bible open with me and you turn to, page, uh, to chapter 15, you see now another episode, if I can put it that way. Another outworking of this plan that God made, this covenant that God made with Abraham. In chapter 15, we come and we read in verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Now, this is simply a restatement of the promise that God had made to him previously. But notice that things aren't happening Things aren't moving along the trajectory that Abraham would have wanted. God had promised Abraham to give him the land. Abraham doesn't have any of the land yet. God had promised him many children. Abraham doesn't have any children yet. And his wife is getting older and older. And so we have Abraham's cry of distress in verse 2 of chapter 15. And Abraham said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. You hear what Abraham is saying. He's saying, the person who's going to inherit all my wealth is this man, Eliezer. He's not even my son. Lord, what happened to the promise that you gave me that I would have so many children that I would become a great nation? Again, you might say this is, this is covenant, covenant jeopardy in one sense, right? Or covenant danger. In other words, The the, the promises that God made are going to fall to the ground. They're going to fail. Now, in God's mercy, God gives him this this visual visual sign. That's why I say Genesis 15 is the covenant confirmed. Genesis 15, the covenant confirmed. When Abraham has all this distress that the covenant is not going to happen, God's not going to keep his promises, God comes to him and he gives him this visual display Now, this is remarkable, my friends. Uh, I don't have time to go in great detail here, but at the end of this chapter, you read this this really remarkable uh, display where God tells Abraham to take these animals. In verse 9, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he cuts these animals in half. And again, you have to imagine the, the, the blood and the gore of what this would have... You know, think about it, right? These animals are severed in half and placed side by side. Now, evidently, from the records of the time, this was a covenant uh, ceremony that uh, wasn't unique to what God does here, but what God is now doing to Abraham is giving him this confirmation of the covenant promises that he had made with him previously. 
And when Abraham falls asleep that night, he has a vision. And now picture this. We would expect that between these severed animals with all the blood and the gore, and and again, you can just imagine, that Abraham would walk between those pieces, right? And it would be a sign that Abraham will keep his side of the covenant. There's only one problem here, my friends, is that God really hasn't given Abraham anything to do. God hasn't really placed any conditions on Abraham up till this point. And so the amazing story here, my friends, is that we read that something else passes between those cut animals. In verse 17, we read, And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between those pieces. Now that's a representation of God himself. That, is a, a, that torch represents, it's a symbol of the very presence of God. And my friends, God himself now walks between those pieces, and do you see it this morning? What God is saying, I, I almost don't dare say this. this. This almost seems irreverent for me to say, but my friends, it's what the scripture clearly gives us. And that is God himself is saying, if I don't keep my promises to you, Abraham, if my covenant fails, may what happened to these severed animals happen to me. Again, in the language of covenants of the time, it's called a self-maledictory oath. In other words, may, may, may it come on me, on myself, all the evil that, is, that these cut-up animals, and again, all the gore and the blood and the, 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 the picture there is just awful, right? We wouldn't want to look at it. But that's by intention. So God confirms to Abraham, I will certainly keep my covenant, Abraham. You have all this doubt and all this distress, but dismiss those doubts. It will happen exactly the way that I have promised it. So the covenant confirmed. We come to Genesis 17. Genesis 17, again, I hope you see this as the outworking, the unfolding of this covenant throughout history. Now Abraham is much older And we're told in Genesis 17, verse 1, and again, these details are important. Now, when Abraham was 99 years old, and still no child. And now we read, my friends, that God comes to him again and says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. This, by the way, is the first time that God even puts any kind of terms upon Abraham, saying, walk before me and be blameless. But once again, once again, Abraham uh, objects. And uh, and we're told that he even, uh, look at verse 3, and Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him. Abraham falls on his face. In other words, at this point, at this point, it's not even possible. And in verse 17, so Genesis 17 and verse 17, we have what is a normal reaction. Then Abraham fell on his face and, what's that word there? Laughed. Because my my friends, by this point, the, the fulfillment of the promises that God made to him are preposterous. It's impossible. But you know, I think we're noticing something here, don't we? That God seems to work by way of human impossibility. 
God fulfills his covenant to his people in a way of impossibilities. And that's what's happened. Abraham even laughs. But now God gives him a sign. And this is going to be a perpetual sign through all the descendants, right? And that is the sign of circumcision. God commands Abraham to circumcise all his descendants. Verse 10, every male among you shall be circumcised. And verse 11, we're taught then the significance of this. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Every time a male person of Israel saw the circumcision, he would be reminded of the covenant of God. And still he has no children. He doesn't own any of the land of Canaan. But let's push it one step further and turn to Genesis chapter 22. Because now, by this time, Abraham is given a son. He has Isaac. And you can imagine that Abraham and Sarah were thrilled with the birth of Isaac. It was a miracle. It was humanly impossible. But God gave them Isaac. And then chapter 22. And chapter 22 is a chapter that is deeply mysterious. It's not just mysterious on the pages of Scripture, my friends. It's deeply mysterious in our own experience. Because this is the way God often leads his people. Because now, after God gives Abraham and Sarah, you might say, this possibility that the covenant actually could happen, he cuts off even that. right? And God says to Abraham, Genesis 22 and verse 2, Take now your son, your only son, as if God needed to remind Abraham that Isaac was his only son. But God goes on, the son whom you love. And then God gives him his name, Isaac. Read that with me again, Genesis 22, verse 2. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And you see, my friends, now Abraham has removed from him every human possibility of keeping the covenant, of God keeping the covenant. Every human possibility is removed and cut off. Now, of course, we know the rest of the story, right? That God does not, Isaac is not killed. Isaac's life is spared. But in the life of Abraham, my friends, what a, what a deeply mysterious, but also isn't there something that's very precious about this history that God gives us? Later, Paul will say that against hope, Abraham believed in hope. When there were all these things that said it's hopeless, Abraham, it can't possibly happen, that Abraham clung to the promise that God had given him back in Genesis chapter 12. He refused to let it go. In the book of Hebrews, we're, we're told that Abraham believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead if needs be. And that's why Abraham is the father of all believers. Because Abraham is the pattern for us of believing even when there is everything to the contrary. Well, the covenant is reaffirmed in Genesis 26 to Isaac and reaffirmed again in Genesis 28 to Jacob. 
So this is the covenant that God gave to Abraham. Let's think now about the fulfillment of this covenant. Now, in the first place, this covenant that God made with Abraham has a literal and a physical fulfillment. We don't deny that. In fact, what happens then in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and in Deuteronomy, and keep going, right? Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 King, 1 and 2 Chronicles, those chapters all give us the history of God's fulfillment of the promises that he made to Abraham. Abraham did have many children. He did become a great nation. He did finally come into possession of the land of Palestine. All those things were literally and physically fulfilled to Abraham, even though he wasn't alive to see it, in the nation of Israel. But my friends, what's interesting is that when we come to the New Testament, and again, I think I've said this several times now, the New Testament is teaching us how to understand the Old Testament, right? Even as the Old Testament in many ways teaches us how to understand the New Testament, right? Those things kind of go together. But now the New Testament has quite a different take on God's promises to Abraham. So let's take that first one, land. God promised Abraham the land of Palestine. Now the first thing that we notice is we turn to Romans 4. I gave you that that uh, text, Romans 4 and verse 13. So let's read this. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants or to his seed that he would be heir of the world. Now if you have a pen in hand, uh, circle that word world. Because let's remember that's, that's not what God promised Abraham in, in Genesis 12. God promised Abraham in Genesis 12 the land the land of Palestine. In fact, in, the, in, Gen, in one of the later chapters, he gives very specific borders. He says, from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates River, I will give you this land and to your seed. But now, uh, Paul, when he's writing about the promises that God made to Abraham, says that Abraham was an heir, or he had received a promise, that he would receive the entire world. And that's the word, I think you may know this word in Greek, right? Cosmos. It's the, 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 the cosmos, right? Everything, the whole world, it's not just the land. You see how Paul is understanding the promise that God made to Abraham in a larger, fuller way than we might be initially led to understand it when we first read it. Then Hebrews 11, and I'd ask you to turn here because this is a a slightly longer portion, but in Hebrews 11, this is where God, or the author of Hebrews is telling us about all these heroes of faith. And of course, Abraham is going to be the the central figure there, right? He is the father of the faithful. And in Hebrews 11 and verse 10, uh, well, let's back up to verse 8. Hebrews 11 and verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Verse 9, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise. So note that, my friends, that Abraham arrived at the land of promise. He moved in. He, He found a place there. He lived there, but notice it says he lived as an alien. He was in the land that God had promised him. You you think that would be what he was looking for. 
But notice it says, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Now, if you've moved into a place to, to, to settle there, you don't live in tents, right? Children, when you go camping, that's not a permanent thing. You don't set up a tent as a permanent dwelling. If you're going to settle down someplace, you build a house. Why was, why was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob living in tents? Well, verse 10 tells us the reason. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You see, my friends, Abraham wasn't satisfied with the land of Palestine because the land of Palestine was not all that God had promised him. And Abraham, already in his own day, had a sense of it, that the soil, the dirt, the rocks, the trees, the plants of Palestine was not the full promise that God had made him. He was looking for another city. He was looking for a city which had foundations, a city, the heavenly city. Turn the page over to chapter 12. Chapter 12 and verse 22. Chapter 12 and verse 22. Now this is referring to Moses, not Abraham, but still the idea would have been the same. Notice that in chapter, 20, or in chapter 12 and verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Notice, my friends, that the author of Hebrews is not all that interested in the literal, physical city of Jerusalem. And he even teaches us that Abraham was not all that interested in the land of Palestine. But you say, well, wait a minute, God promised him the land of Palestine. Wasn't that what he was looking to inherit? No. The scripture teaches us that Abraham was looking for something higher, something fuller, something bigger than just the literal city of Jerusalem or the literal land and dirt of Palestine. He was looking for another city, a heavenly city, a new Jerusalem. So, my friends, what was the fulfillment then of God's promise to Abraham in terms of the land? Well, it was not the physical land of Canaan. And even today, it's not the physical land of Canaan. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the new heavens and the new earth that God will set up on this earth. And in that way, what Paul says about Abraham in Romans 4.13, Abraham will inherit the whole earth, the whole world. But it'll be a new heaven and a new earth where God will wipe away all tears from every eye. Now seed, hastening on then to seed, how was that promise fulfilled? Abraham certainly did have many children, but again, the New Testament teaches us to take this in a different way. And again, I go to Romans chapter 4. Verse 16, I gave you that on the outline. For this reason, it is by faith, that is, this justification, this gift of justification is what Paul is talking about here. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise, there it is, the promise, will be guaranteed to all the seed, that is, all the children of Abraham, not only to those who are of the law, in other words, all the Israelites, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So even if you're not an Israelite, even if you're not an ethnic or biological child of Abraham, when you have faith, you are the child of Abraham. Once again, when God made a promise of many children to Abraham, it was not just physical children. It were these spiritual children 
Everyone who believes in Jesus is a child of Abraham. Now the text uh, for this evening's service is Galatians 3.29. I'll just read the last uh, verse there. I gave you the, the context, but in the very last section there, it says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, or Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. You see what Paul has done. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has says that when God promised Abraham many children, it was not literal biological children, but it was all the family of God, the whole church, believer, Jew and Gentile alike. Is that correct? Do I interpret that correctly, my friends? Again, I, I want you to see it with your own eyes in your own Bible. I, I don't make these things up, right? That's what it says. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Finally, blessing. The last, the last uh, promise that God made to Abraham was blessing. By the way, I just want to point out to you, as I have in the outline there, the word inheritance. You find that this word is used a lot in the Bible when it refers to the blessings that God promised Abraham. My friends, it never refers to the physical land of Canaan. And again, you can, you can look these up yourself. You can get a concordance and do it. It does not, to the best of my knowledge, please correct me if I'm wrong, it does not ever refer to the physical land of Palestine. It is always referring to the spiritual blessings that come to every believer when they put their trust in Jesus. At any rate, I look at Galatians 3, verse 8. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So what is the blessing that Abraham would bring to all the families or all the nations of the earth? I think you can see it there, right? Justifying, being justified by faith, right? That God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that is the blessing that God promised to Abraham. In Galatians 3.14, it continues, in order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The promise of the Spirit through faith is the blessing that God promised to Abraham. Do you see that? In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. What blessing? Receiving the promise of the Spirit through faith. So in each of these cases, my friends, the New Testament teaches us that the physical, literal fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham is not the thing we should be focused on. It's not of any importance. The actual thing of importance, the real significance of what God promised Abraham are these spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Now, my friends, in terms of application, to come to bring this back to Advent, as I said before, Advent is a time when we look back into God's eternal program or plan of salvation. And we see this covenant being fulfilled. And when we stand before the manger of Bethlehem, one thought, not the only thought by any stretch, but one thought that can come into our minds is that God kept his promise to Abraham. And now I can see it. Furthermore, this is how the uh, celebration of Christmas happened for both Zechariah and 
And you can read that in Luke chapter 1. In Luke 1 and verse 55. Zacharias is, is giving his... Or no, this is the song of Mary. This is the song of Mary. In Luke 1 and verse 55. She sings this beautiful song. I won't read it all to you. But at the end, she says, As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. In other words, this glorious blessing that God has promised to me, it's a blessing that he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. So for Mary, and she hasn't even had the baby yet, but already she may look in faith and say, this, what God has promised me, is a fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham. And that fills her soul with so much joy. That's why she says at the beginning of her song, my soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. In Zacharias, the song of Zacharias, and this is what I actually used uh, this morning for a call to worship, but in Luke 1 and verse 73, where Zacharias is talking about the mercy that God has shown by the birth of Jesus, he says, The oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him, without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And so, my friends, when I make an application on this covenant with Abraham, I hope, I pray, that we can celebrate this Christmas season by looking into the manger of Bethlehem and saying what Mary said, as he spoke to Abraham, our father. And if God kept his promise to Abraham, our father, then will he not keep his promise to us? Will he not carry us through this life with all its tears and with all its struggles and with all its sorrows and bring us to that second Christmas, right? That second coming of Christ. To that glorious spiritual land of which we talked about this morning. That new heaven and that new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Now that's a glorious promise, my friends, that is strengthened for us and reiterated to us, reaffirmed to us at Christmas time, when we stand before the cradle. In the second application, we see here, well, this is the same thing I've been saying, right? God's faithfulness to his promises. Simeon, it says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And we, too, are waiting for the consolation of Israel, not for his first coming, but for his second coming. We are awaiting people, and we have a promise-keeping God. You know, that's a beautiful marriage, my friends, that takes place when this waiting people, waiting for the consolation of Israel, looking and hoping for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and a promise-keeping God. Now, those two things come together in such a beautiful way in the experience and in the life of God's people. That's work for your faith, for a waiting people to exercise faith upon a promise-keeping God. To say with Mary, and to say with Zacharias, the oath that he spake to Abraham and the oath that he spake to me, because I am a son of Abraham, and you women are daughters of Abraham. We are the seed of Abraham, and we have all these promises made to us in Christ. And God never fails to keep his promises. Now, my friends, I close the sermon this morning by asking, do you need a sign of that? Do you need a sign? Abraham needed a sign, right? God gave him the ritual of those severed animals. 
But God gives us a sign too, doesn't he? Shall we read about it? Shall we read the preparatory form for the Lord's Supper as we find it in our Forms and Prayers book? And we can read about this, this sign that God gives to his people in our own time, in our own day. And this time around, uh, we'll read the, the Form 2 of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Form 2, which you can find on page 44. You should find a Forms and Prayers book in your pew there. But we'll read Form 2. And I'll read uh, through the prayer on page 45. So in our church, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, our fathers have given us this form, which we can read, which helps us prepare to receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So I'm on page 44, celebration of the Lord's Supper, form two, and the preparatory exhortation is this. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, since we, hope to, since we hope next Lord's Day to celebrate the blessed sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we are called to prepare our hearts by rightly examining ourselves. For the Apostle Paul has written, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Therefore, you should examine your life, and considering your own sin and the wrath of God against it, be sure that you humble yourself in repentance before God. Examine your heart to be sure that you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, believing that your sins are forgiven wholly by grace because of the Lord's sacrifice on the cross. Finally, examine your conscience to be sure that you resolve to live in faith and obedience before your Lord and in love and peace with your neighbor. God will surely receive at the table of his Son all who truly repent of their sins, believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, and desire to do his will. All those, however, who do not repent, who do not put their trust in the Lord Jesus, and who have no desire to lead a godly life, are warned, according to the command of God, to keep themselves from the holy sacrament. If any of us is living in disobedience to Christ and in enmity with his neighbor, he must repent of his sin and reconcile himself to his neighbor before he comes to the Lord's table. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This solemn warning is not designed, however, to discourage penitent sinners from coming to the Holy Sacrament. We do not come to the supper as though we were righteous in ourselves, but rather to testify that we are sinners and that we look to Jesus Christ for our salvation. Although we do not have perfect faith, do not serve and love God with all our hearts and do not love our neighbors as we ought, we are confident that the Savior accepts us at his table when we come in humble faith with sorrow for our sins and with a will to follow him as he commands. And since it is necessary for us to come to the sacrament in good conscience, we urge any who lack this confidence to seek from the minister or any elder of this church such counsel as may quiet his conscience or lead to the conversion of his life. All then who are truly sorry for their sins, who sincerely believe in the Lord Jesus as their Savior, and who earnestly desire to lead a godly life, ought to accept the invitation given and come with gladness to the table of their Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, who has given us the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
and provided a most wonderful communion with him through the mystery of the sacrament, we need your grace to enable us to prepare our hearts for the reception of Holy Communion. To all who sincerely believe in your Son and truly repent of their sins, grant assurance of your gracious readiness to receive and bless them in the supper of their Lord. To all who have not yet repented and have not yet put their trust in the Lord Jesus, grant a restraining fear of this supper, lest their condemnation be greater. But have mercy upon these and grant them grace to repent of their sins and seek their salvation in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We confess, O Father, that we have all offended your majesty and deserve your judgment. We have transgressed in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Truly there is no strength in us. Be merciful, O God, and grant us your pardon. And let us come to the sacrament in the joy of your forgiving love through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit, the one and only God, lives and reigns forever. Amen. So there you have it, my friends, that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us this visible sign, just as he did to Abraham with those, those severed animals, and just as he did with the sign of circumcision, a visible sign of his continued love to all those who believe and trust in him. It's, some things aren't, aren't, never change, do they? Abraham had distress and he doubted. Sometimes our faith wavers, but God gives us this sign, repeated sign, again and again, to strengthen our faith and to encourage us to walk with him. Well, let's turn then uh, in our blue hymnal to number 336. 336, a good Advent song here. We'll sing the three verses. How bright appears the morning star with mercy beaming from afar. The host of heaven rejoices O righteous branch, O Jesse's rod, thou son of man and son of God, we too lift our voices. And what follows then in verses 1, 2, and 3 of 336 in the blue hymnal.
go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.